Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's special episode of the Dead Pundits Society. As always, I'm your host, Adam Proctor. Joining me to talk about a really hot topic this week is Adolph Reed Jr. He is a legendary socialist uh, analyst, political commentator, and scholar of black politics. That hot topic is a resolution that's on the table for DSA's upcoming convention in about a week and a half's time. That resolution is to establish an Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color caucus. We're going to talk about that and much more. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to this week's show. Uh, to longtime listeners, the topic that we cover today will not come out of the blue by a long shot. We're in the midst of my Summer Anti-Essentialism Series 2017. Uh, we've been talking about race essentialism, among many others. I've had uh, some great guests on in the recent past. Uh, last week, I had on Pascal Robert. We talked about the Black Miss Leadership class. Uh, on episode 15, I had on Cedric Johnson. Uh, we talked about black power romanticism and the kind of strategic orientation we need to have to build a multiracial resistance against class exploitation in the present. So for first-time listeners, you might feel like this is an overly particular type of topic for a podcast of this nature to take on, but my longtime listeners will know that this is very much in the current of the types of things that I'm taking on this summer in my anti-essentialism series. So uh, we're going to talk more specifically about the resolution that's on the table in the upcoming DSA convention that's uh, in, in a couple of weeks' time. That resolution uh, would like to establish an Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color caucus in DSA. That would be an autonomous caucus. They would also call for uh, the uh, wholesale adoption of the Black Youth Project 100's agenda for reparations, uh, as well as uh, some other policies that we're going to get into in the show. So uh, this, by my estimation, is a, is a wrong-headed proposal. I've got about an hour and a half interview with Adolph Reed Jr. to try to explain why. Um, long-time listeners, I think, will have a pretty good sense of my objections. But first-timers, try to be patient. Uh, you know, a lot of this might sound uh, radical or off-putting, uh, but I think it's really important to get some of these things correct in order to have a multiracial, uh, class-based organization that can take up fights uh, that are relevant to people all across the country. So stay tuned for that. Just a quick word. Uh, this is the shortened free episode for all of my Patreon subscribers. Head on over to Patreon right now, whether that be the website or the app on your phone, and you can see the full two-plus-hour interview that I did with Adolph. It's about two hours and 20 minutes, and if you're a Patreon subscriber, you're going to get the whole thing. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, you're going to get about an hour and 15 minutes of the interview. So if you want to hear the whole thing, go on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe. Uh, for $3 a month, $5 a month, or $8 a month, you can get full access to this two hours and 20 minute uh, approximately interview that I've got going with Adolph Reed. 
In addition to that, I have two uh, uh, more hours of another interview that I did with Adolf covering other matters. Uh, that's on the Patreon site. I have a longer interview that I did with Katie Halper uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I have a, some other bonus material over there that you're not going to want to miss. So if you want to support the project and get some exclusive content in the process, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Uh, let's see. Check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for the Dead Pundit Society. This is a this is a special episode of DPS. Uh, you know, in essence, we really want to reach out to DSA members, in particular uh, convention delegates. So, if you're listening to this and you like the message and you're inspired by what Adolf has to say and the kind of strategic orientation that he's putting forward, by all means, reach out to me. Send me a message on Twitter. Um, at Dead Pundits. You can find me on Facebook, my Facebook page. You can send a message to the page. I want to get in touch with you all. Um, I know that there are members all across the country and they may or may not have a voice and they may or may not uh, be connected to Unite, you know, uh, whether it's before the convention, at the convention, or after the convention in order to lead this organization in a more principled direction. So by all means, reach out to me. Let's connect on this topic. Let's brainstorm and try to set a bold, multiracial, anti-exploitation agenda for DSA for the coming years. And I just want to be clear, certainly not all my listeners are DSA members, or even maybe even like DSA. So I want to make a quick pitch why this is an important episode. Uh, No matter what you think about DSA, they are by far the largest socialist organization in the country. And so you can make a case that so goes the fate of DSA, uh, also goes the fate of the left at, as, as, a, as a whole. So, you know, whether or not you're a lover, a hater, or somewhere in the middle, uh, this topic is going to be really relevant to anyone who's associated in left organizing today. So with that said, everybody, Adolf Reed Jr., enjoy. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me on the line is Adolf Reed Jr. He is a professor political science at University of Pennsylvania, and he's a longtime uh, union activist and, and socialist organizer. Uh, Adolf, how you doing? Oh, pretty good, man. It's good to, yeah, it's good we can make this happen finally. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I hope you aren't offended by the longtime activist <laughs> bit, <laughs> but, but uh, it's no secret you've been doing this for a long time. You've been involved in multiple attempts uh, to, to found labor parties and various working class organizations. Um, you know, and you've been in the thick of things. Uh, g- give us like a quick history. How long has it been? How how long do you say? If you say I've been a socialist for X years, how how many would that be? You think? Well, I actually could say all my life because it because I kind of uh, I mean you know some people came to their politics a little more honestly through their own efforts. I basically just inherited the family business. So like so like I was calling myself a Marxist you know, when I was twelve or thirteen and. And and had no idea what it meant, but I think I've been. I mean, I've never actually called myself an activist, but I've but but I've been active like in politics and left politics in one way or another. Ooh, God! Well, I say now more than half a century because since I was nineteen. Yeah, more yeah. than half a century. So the average uh, the average uh, lifespan of of most of these new socialists. Uh, it's about six months, <laughs> so that makes. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's not. A, I'm right. not denigrating well, yeah. those people. I think that's that's amazing. Yeah. And honestly, I'm more impressed with the six month uh, career types of people than I am with a lot of these oh, 10, yeah. 20 no, no. year career Definitely. types of people. Oh yeah, you know absolutely. What I'm saying. Yeah. 
Give me, give me, uh, you know, a, a room full of new socialists, and I'll take over the world. Give me a room full of, uh, you know, thirty-year socialists, and, and I don't know, we'll probably uh, kill each other. Well, no, I think that's right because it, uh, it's amazing, man. I mean, how how this how bad ideas get inside the head, and it's like the sutures close around them, right? Uh, <laughs> and and people like lose the capacity to um, adjust. Um, you know, uh, you know, to adjust their analyses to fit the changing times, and by that I don't mean uh, giving up on the goal and the vision for radical transformation. But um, I think one problem is is that in a lot of ways, um, a lot of people, especially in the absence of rootedness in solid, uh, I mean, organizational structures, tend to see their their politics as bound up with their personal identity. So. You can't roll with, with the punches, right? Because you're, uh, uh, right. you're too identified with with the formative interpretations of the world, basically. Right. So you're building your own personal yeah, brand. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, to yeah. speak. Yeah. yeah. And when you br- when you have a brand, you're responsible for a brand. You say roll with the punches. That's yeah, good. Exactly. You know, I mean, no matter what embarrassment you know United Airlines <laughs> may have, you know they they got to they got to they got to stick yep. to it no matter yep. what you know uh, because that's the brand yep. right and so it, it doesn't provide the kind of flexibility and the and the, the sort of dynamic uh, attitude that we need to have. So I think that's spot on. So give me, I mean, you know, I'm putting you on the spot here. You know, what do you make of this political moment? Because just to kind of prefigure things, I, I mentioned this at mm-hmm. the beginning of the show, you know, I, I really want this to be a pointed intervention about a specific proposal uh, that's going uh, forward in the Democratic Socialists of America convention in the coming mm-hmm. weeks. Um, but, but it's really indicative of the broader political moment. So let's sort of, uh, pan the camera out a bit and get a broad view. What do you make of this, uh, radicalization that's been going on in the last, you know, six to 12 right. months, particularly, you know, or in and around, uh, the orbit of, of, of DSA and, and other socialist organizations? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Uh, and I mean, you could, I guess in one way you can see it as kind of a progression from whatever it was that sparked Occupy and, and maybe, um, um, but, and of course the Sanders campaign had a lot to do with it. I mean, I've, uh, uh, I mean, obviously I think it's good that people are, are, are interested in talking about socialism uh, again i don't know that uh, you know i don't know how much i would project well i mean i think it opens possibilities and it's really kind of good to see that i mean young people who haven't thought about stuff like this before are you know, may be drawn to to a socialist politics i'm i'm, I'm a little concerned because in um in in some cases um uh, some that i've noticed personally socialism is more like a label that feels good to attach to oneself, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily connected um, to um, uh, to a worked out critique of political economy or or a clear or an at all clear vision of how the society can be better than it is, and 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 in some cases, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like an identity that people. Of like to claim for themselves. I mean, it sort of reminds me, in this sense, of in the cultural studies moment in in American higher ed, like in the '90s, you would see people making claims about the political economy of this and the political economy of that and the political mm-hmm. economy of the other. And and when you look at the texts, 
um, what what you'd find is that well, actually, they had nothing at, at all to do with political economy, but the authors just like like that calling something the political economy of this, that, and the other just implied a kind of heft, right? You know, right, what, right, right. The political economy, a certain seriousness and sophistication, yeah. you know, that that that, that word sort of uh, grants them, right? Exactly. So by invoking it. So there's going to be some of that, of course, right? And mm-hmm. that's just natural but i mean and you see that on social media right the sort of extremely online politics right. uh, yep. in, on twitter and uh facebook and and, and elsewhere yep. yeah 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 absolutely but i mean what i would say more broadly about the moment is that we know right of course that there's been a lot of chatter since the day after the election about the need to take lessons from what happened and and as i've said before i mean it, um i find it a little dispiriting, uh, you know, dispiriting, but ultimately entirely predictable that that many, if not most, people who proclaim the need to learn lessons uh, took from the election the lesson that they should be more conscientious and committed to doing the stuff that they were doing before that ultimately contributed to our what uh, to our having wound wound up in this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean. To me, um, you know, I think a key thing about this moment, I'd say a couple of things. One of them is that what happens in elections next year is vitally important and what happens and and that needs to shape the way that we think about politics. It needs to shape the way we think about left or radical politics. Uh, it's probably going to be the same in 2020, but we definitely need to do whatever we can to try to stop the bleeding and, and uh, slow this stuff down. And uh, I think also... Um, that that means, or the reality is that the key fights are going to be at the state level. Uh, I mean, even the local ones are going to be at the state level. Because uh, among other things, I mean, that's that's where we can begin to shape you know the concrete politics and figure out who's who and what's what. I mean, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, considerations are like inside the labor movement, uh, and 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 I think this is true among the Sanders in endorsing unions who want to be part of the cutting edge of trying to build uh, um, um, build something new, I mean, beyond the, the you know, Democrats, um, questions would be, so if, if you find yourself in a situation in your state where uh, the hack Democrat whom you've supported over the years and who's been good to, to working people in general, uh, you know, the labor movement and your own union in particular is challenged by a Sanders Democrat what do you do? And there's no pat answer to that question, uh, um, except some version of it depends, right? It's because it's the kind of thing that's got to get worked out through discussion and a debate uh, you know, within the movement. But it's that level of concrete discussion and debate that I think is going to be most instrumental for for you know, both for helping to stop the bleeding, but and uh, also for helping us to ground the kind of institutional politics that's actually focused on building uh, you know, working-class power that we we're going to have to have to tur- turn this thing around uh, you know, mm-hmm. eventually. Uh, and that means uh, you know, being open to all kinds of uh, I mean, different alliances. And I think this debate about what, what to think about Trump voters or or well, yeah, about what what to do about the Trump victory and what that says about something called the white working class is also a very important debate. I think it's largely stupid. 
uh, right? Because right? Um, in the first place, there's there's no such thing as the white working class. So so you can't have a debate. Of, well, I guess you can have a debate about that. You can have a debate about that, like you can have a debate about you know different subspecies of unicorns. Uh, so and then that, of course, kind of patches into um, you know how we should think about the status of identity politics and and race as a factor uh you know in american politics uh and anti-racism as a politics and so forth and so on all right so let me ask so i think that that's a good overview uh one of the things i think that's been so um electrifying about the what we can broadly determine the post occupy bernie uh you know kind of era and mm-hmm. a lot of people will acknowledge uh you and i i'm sure alike that you know our personal positions are decidedly to the left mm-hmm. of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, let's just get that out there and let's right. get that out of the way. So we don't have to, you know, we don't have to mess with that <laughs> right. any longer. Yeah, right. That's good. done. Okay. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've done our performative hand waving. Right. Uh, you know, the critics can back off now. Right? We are real socialists. Right. Bernie is not whatever that means. You know, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. No, I don't either, but, um, but, but it, yeah, we've said it, right. right? We, yep. t- we, we ticked that box. Yep. Uh, we can move on to more substantive issues, but but the exciting thing I think that what what, what uh, explains the growth of DSA is that is that you know regardless of what folks think about the political composition of, of Bernie Sanders' uh, you know platform and project, is that it has put uh, concrete actionable policies back into the uh, state yep. of play. Yep. Yeah, back into definitely. the field of play. I mean, and and so what that does is it shows people that, you know, you exactly like you said, the fight at the local arena and the state arena is is back on the table and it's more important now than ever, which is, you know, which is why I'm excited that that there are DSA chapters and other socialist organization chapters uh you know cropping up all across the mm-hmm. country. And, uh, you know, as much as we, you know, just spent the last 10 minutes or so sort of bagging on some of the bad tendencies of the left and the Twitter left and the Facebook left, um, a lot of these people have nothing to do with that. And mm-hmm. they're sort of right. just very quietly, patiently working uh, together in, in small to medium sized groups to, to right. figure out how to intervene in this particular moment. And so one thing that you touched on there is that there's this um, – there's this tragic uh, du- duality of, of 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 large groups of new socialists. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, uh, they're very uh, uh, pliable to ideas, and I mean that in the best way possible, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're open to new ideas. Right. And they're, they're eager to learn and try things, right? So oh, right. they're not tripping over their own feet like uh, you know graduate students do in seminars yep. across <laughs> yep. the country. Yep. They just go and they do stuff. Yep. Right, they don't sit around and navel gaze. They just they go and they act. Right, yeah. Because uh, action is 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 the most important thing. We got to get in there and, and, and get our hands dirty. Mm-hmm. The 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 downside of that, as you well know, is that uh, uh, sort of throwing yourself into the fray means that there's going to be a learning curve. Right. Um, and, right. and oftentimes we are operating from a basis when it comes to, like you said, that sort of embedded political economic perspective is really not in, in, in the background of, of people's strategic orientation. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I hope this show can contribute to. And I want to do that in this episode in a really grounded way. So, so let's take up uh, the actual proposal for folks. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called the Resolution of DSA's Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color Caucus. And I know this seems very specific uh, to folks who are outside of DSA's orbit, 
but it is incredibly topical uh, and and uh, illustrative of the the kind of political debates that are very very live across the left right now. You have a long history when it comes to various proposals for these types of measures. Right. Maybe kind of take us through that uh, step by step, what that history has been for you. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I'll start out with the experience that we had in the Labor Party um, that, um, because it's probably closest to this. And, um, and I had an earlier one, which I might talk about too, but it, but, but it seemed more suspect even. I guess I should start out this way. It's important to, to take into account where in the life cycle of organizations, the political organization is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, DSA has been around for 40 years practically, but, but it's kind of a new entity in the sense that it's experienced all this growth. There, 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 there are a lot of people apparently coming in. And it seems like the organization is, is kind of at a crossroads now. Uh, about what exactly it's going to be, because now there's actually a chance. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that, you know, I mean, DSA in chapters in uh, you know, various places had close relationships to the left wing of the labor movement and and that the civil rights group, groups and whatever. But it seems like the organization is at a point now where it's possible to consider direct and targeted, I mean, political interventions um, uh, on its own. Right. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, not running big campaigns, but I mean, necessarily, uh, but 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 taking up, uh, I mean, national I mean, issues uh, you know, to intervene or or to try to intervene around at at the local level and also you know, to work out a, a national strategy mm-hmm. uh, that's appropriate to the political moment that we're in right now. So essentially, for the first time in its 40 year history, it has the ability to set the agenda in a, in a in a in a limited you know in a in a humble sort of way yeah, but, yeah you know, on right. the left on the on the left right. we are small right. i don't mean to say the sort of broad progressive liberal mm-hmm. uh, stra- stratosphere in in which dsa is still very small right but we do have the ability on the left as it's known to really uh, set the agenda. It's become a pole of attraction. It's a big tent. Right. A lot of people from other organizations who have joined DSA because, well, that's just where the socialists are. Right, exactly. Um, regardless of their disagreement and heterogeneity in terms of ideology and commitments, it's just where the action is right now. And so, yeah, I think you're right about that. And, and that's a good thing and also not, not, not so good a thing at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but on balance, it's a good thing, obviously. Um, right, right. They're, they're, those are good problems to have. Yes. is the way I like to say. Yep. If you can pick your problems, you want to be sure that you can have the good ones. And I think DSA, uh, the problems that they're faced with right now, are, are are the right ones that you want to have in a in a sense. Yeah. No. Uh, no. Absolutely. And um, I got to tell you, man. Like right after our founding convention, I was on a panel at the Solidarity uh, you know, convention with uh, you know Jane Slaughter, uh, and by our, I mean the Labor Party's founding convention and we talked about it and whatnot and and uh you know some old guy said uh well how do we know that you're not going to wind up like the british labor party and and uh, i was taken aback but all i could say to him was you know what i i hope that we're successful enough that i'll have to worry about that at some point <laughs> yeah right uh, right right but that's a good problem to have yeah yeah but so anyway i mean so um so what that means uh, is, or I guess the reason that I mentioned that, uh, at, now, you know, as a point of comparison with where we were in the Labor Party when we you know, had to deal with questions like this, 
was that you're in building mode, right? Like you're in organizing mode, uh, right? It's small, as you say. And one of the objectives is to broaden the base and to build the organization as part of building the movement. Mm-hmm. And what one of the differences, uh, or I guess what one of the boundaries, right, between what deserves the label sectarian and what doesn't is the extent to which, uh, you know, the extent to which people see building the organization as the same thing as building the movement. And one, one of the, so it's a testament to the fact that DSA is not on the wrong, wrong side of the sectarian boundary that, that most people, as far as I know, uh, in the organization don't see building the movement, uh, reductively as, um, as identical with, with building the organization, but building mm-hmm. the organization mm-hmm. is part of the building the movement. So from that perspective, um, I think the framework through which it makes sense, makes the most sense to address and consider matters like this proposal uh, or the resolution is first of all, to ask what impact it could have on building the organization and a new building the movement like for that matter. But if DSA is in a position to try to intervene and uh, to intervene on, a, on a behalf of a particular, if somewhat broad, maybe even um, amorphous perspective or, or sensibility, or then it's reasonable that people would think that preserving and advancing that, sense, that sen- sensibility is, is an important objective for trying, uh, uh, for trying to build a movement. Mm-hmm. And and it seems to me, and you know, this is the way that we uh, address this issue in the Labor Party too. That the that in a building phase, what you're most concerned about is is broadening solidarities without um, while avoiding opportunism. I guess it's the simplest way to put it. And there's no real roadmap uh, right for that. Uh, I mean, for how to do that, other than to say that yes, the objective should be to 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 broaden the base of solidarity while avoiding opportunism or, or, or uh, well, and by opportunism, like in this case, I mean, compromises that have the effect of, of, uh, of uh, undermining the long-term objectives. So the first question that I would put to the resolution is, uh, or, or about the resolution is how would adopting this, and I'll separate the question of the caucus, which I understand to be like more of a constitutional issue uh, or bylaws uh, you know, issue. But um, and I'll I'll se- separate that from the substantive positions, basically. Um, but the question would be, how would adopting or what impact would adopting this have on on the organization's ability to broaden the base and and uh, and or to broaden the organizational base and and to help to broaden the base of the movement. Right, right. Um, and, I mean, that's something I would like to see addressed. Well, yeah, I think that might be a basis on which it would make sense to discuss this. One one basis on which it would make sense to discuss this at the convention. And you know, I don't really mean to be coy. And, and I mean, therefore, I'll say this. I mean, and it's something that, people who know me have probably heard me say like a dozen times over the last 20 years. Part of the challenge is, is to explain how it is that we can, um, 
succeed in building the solidarities that we need to to transform the society or even to contend to transform the society if if we have to start out from um, affirming how it is we all differ and accepting a contention that different um, ascriptively defined populations have have uh, issues that are that are fundamentally incommensurable and 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 unintelligible to one another. Right. So, I mean, just to build on that, you know, one of the things I've been touching on the last uh, couple episodes for uh, loyal listeners will be very familiar. I mean, it see it strikes me that there is this conviction on the left right now, and this is going to be controversial. So maybe you all might want to sit down. Uh, <laughs> there's a conviction on the left. Uh, that there is a fundamental irreconcilable difference uh, between the differently melanined mm, yeah. uh, that, that is only mirrored on, like, say, the far right, say the Richard right. Spencers right. of the world. Right. It's simply the case that the left has a different interpretation of the irreconcilable differences uh, amongst the, the, the races. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that's something we should really, uh, uh, analyze, you know, I think Pascal Robert last week really, uh, you know, called to question this idea in terms of like, you know, that there's this, uh, fundamental difference between, uh, you know, the black population mm-hmm. in the United States and, and who that benefits, right. you know, we can, and, and who, who within the various communities that, ag- whom that agenda serves. And we can have a long discussion about that, but, um, well, yeah, we could, but I'll say this though. I mean, um, Right. I mean, our uh, I mean, our approach uh, was, and my approach is that, that that the most commonly shared experience in the United States is having to work for a living or being expected to work for a living, uh, right. and and it's shared very broadly uh, um, throughout most of the society, and it seems like that's the base you know, on which to try to build, and it's and also. That and this is what you know. People like A. Philip Randolph and others argued too. I mean, um, and it was you know, actually a commonly shared view among left labor and uh, you know, liberal black political actors, right? What I mean, through the 1940s, that the best way for blacks or other um, minority groups, as they were called in those days, to advance their their causes is is through um, you know, the mutuality. Of a class-based, of a working class-based, um, right? I mean, political initiative. But, uh, but just from the uh, from the very mundane standpoint, for instance, of attacking racism. I mean, insofar as what we mean by that is breaking down prejudicial attitudes and bigotry that have political consequences. It seems to me, uh, uh, when I'm also there, the best way to do that is through struggling over bigotries within um, a framework of labor solidarity, right? Um, from a perspective of, of recognized common interest, right? Because that's how you develop standing with people to change their minds. Now, I can imagine the response being, uh, you know, something like, well, I'm, well, we're not talking about, uh, you know, racism as, as individual bigotry, uh, you were talking about structural racism or or institutional racism. But in my experience, people toss those phrases around in lieu of explanation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, because uh, what what is it that makes durable, 
patterns of inequality or you know, structural inequality, what is it that makes those those racist? You know, to go back to Randolph, uh, I mean, again, for a moment, I, I, Randolph argued even before the 1963 march on Washington that most of urban black black unemployment couldn't be attributed, uh, I mean, to racial factors at all, but were products, but was a product of an economic transformation, I mean, deindustrialization. And I know that, that the discursive tendency in the sort of anti-racist politics now is to respond to a point like that by saying, well, yeah, but blacks find themselves in the position um, to suffer, uh, I mean, disproportionately um, from economic shifts, shifts like that uh, you know, because of the effects of you know, racism in the past. Well, okay, fine and dandy. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't tell us anything about how the mechanisms of inequality are reproduced on a daily basis. That's right. Now. That's right. And that's what the challenge is, is for us to do, even if, or, or to the extent that we're focused on trying to uh, combat you know, inequality in the, or inequalities that appear as uh, racial disparities. Right. I mean, I think there's also a, a problem of, of, uh, different frames. And, and you talked about the macro frame, the sort of macro, large, big picture perspective of racial disparity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is absolutely true that uh, racialized people are disproportionately um, represented in, in the realms of the you know, most oppressed and exploited. Mm-hmm. But that's, the, that's a macro sociological perspective, which is important. Uh, you know, we need to wield that in certain ways. As you, as you mentioned, we can, I think we can wield it in a better way. But you know, let's talk about the micro perspective. Is it, it, is it any solace to a poor, white, working-class single mother who is struggling to keep her electricity on? Is it any solace to that woman that white woman, that, well, at least my race is doing relatively better in society. <laughs> the, the, does, that, does that make her feel better? <laughs> you know, does that put food right. in her children's mouth? Does that solve her immediate problems? Uh, does that prevent right. her boss from hyper-exploiting her, from right. harassing her on the job, from, yep. you know, all of these things? Well, you know, look, that kind of cuts, cuts to the heart of the matter in a way because, of course, like we both know, there are a lot of people out there who would say, well, well, yes, it does because she has white skin privilege or, or possessive investment in, in whiteness or whatever. Uh, you know, I don't think that's true because, uh, um, I mean, if you're around people who have to work for a living and who are economically marginal, and I mean, I was, um, I was just up, up in southern New Hampshire to see an old friend of mine from the GI movement who's, who's ill, and I was reminded uh, of the extent to which uh, you know, New Hampshire is uh, Mississippi for white people to the extent that Mississippi isn't Mississippi for white people, right? I mean, broke, beaten down, uh, I mean, um, what, um, economically and, so- and so- socially depressed and whatnot. Um, but, but, but I think that your question is especially pertinent because um, I think that leads us uh, you know, squarely into the question of, of uh, you know, what to make of the Trump vote. Right. Uh, in this sense. Right. That. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the modal Trump Trump voter was a person in whose economic interest it was to vote for Trump. Uh, and I mean, that that gives a lie to all of the all all of the neoliberal Dems foolishness about uh, you know, moderate Republicans out there who 
who who who who uh, who uh, couldn't abide the racism, the sexism, and the homophobia, and and and, and uh, what we saw is that um, you know that constituency has an unlimited capacity to abide racism, sexism, and homophobia as long as it comes along with tax cuts and stuff like that. But right, right. Uh, and the suppression of the labor movement and, and, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, but as uh, Tony Mazaki used to say, and said often that Tony Mazaki, the legendary uh, labor organizer of the uh, what is it, the oil and gas uh, uh, brotherhood? Uh, what was it? Uh, the oil, chemical, and atomic workers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. was actually founding brother of the Labor Party. Uh, but yeah, but Tony often said that if uh, um, look, th- things are getting worse for more and more working people. And if we can't find a way, if we as progressives can't find a way to speak credibly to their concerns, then, then there are other forces out there that are nasty and, and ugly and will have much more dangerous interpretations and programs to offer. And that's what's happened, right? I mean, the Democrats mm-hmm. have abjured the working class, not the white working class. They've abjured the, uh, they've abjured uh, you know, any commitment to working people as working people, right? I mean, like that right, classic right. moment in the primary campaign when um, Hillary Clinton said that uh, uh, well, Sanders wants to break up the big banks, but will that end racism? <laughs> and I thought, no, it, it wouldn't end racism. It wouldn't put a protective shield around the earth to protect us from sunspots. Uh, <laughs> it, it wouldn't help Bahrain win the World Cup. There's a whole lot of things it wouldn't do, right? <laughs> But it's that element, right, uh, right, who want politics to be about racism, n- not not racism, uh, sexism, not sexism, um, and that's precisely what what right. what I mean, so much of the left uh, you know, identifies with as a politics. Ironically, even as they um, express contempt for uh, you know for the DLC types and. And their legacies, and that's and the Clinton centrists, right? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, so let me let me push mm-hmm. on that a little sure. bit because I think you know what 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 the easiest response, and, and we've kind of rehearsed this on my show in previous episodes to that claim uh, that 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 total bullshit claim by Hillary Clinton there that mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, rainy in Wall Street won't end racism <laughs> uh, as an attack on Bernie Sanders' principled sort of left social democratic ideals, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the the easy uh, uh, you know sort of uh, uh, response to that would be okay come on you know we know that the housing crisis disproportionately affected uh, you know people of color across this country through fraudulent mortgages and and and, and all the rest of it you know mm-hmm. because of the history of redlining and right. you know this this uh, this easy credit you know sort of uh, uh, pulled uh, working class black folks into the market into the housing market for the first time and, and they were sort of easy prey for these shysters you know who 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 had fraud you know histories and, and going back to you know way back when so on and so forth and, and Wall Wall Street made themselves fat on those profits right, right? so. Yep. I mean that that's important, right? right. I mean, it's 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 not nothing for no, sure. Sure, it's absolutely essential to to the socialist argument. Right, but I, I, I but I think the the issue there is what what the, what you can take away from saying, from offering that rebuttal, is not getting to the heart of what Clinton was really talking about. Mm-hmm. Because what she's really talking about is, it won't change the ideas in people's heads. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, and and so so th- that's the the problem there is is what we need to really wrap our heads around. I think is that we don't have access to the ideas in people's heads. Right. 
but we do have access to the conditions uh, that ground their experience and, and that, that sort of condition their solidarity or lack of solidarity with others right. in the world. Right. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of saying this to say I think that the principle here that A. Philip Randolph, um, if folks don't know him, they should really look him up. He's a, he's a legendary uh, a black trade unionist and socialist, uh, started with the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters um, you know, in the early 20th century. And uh, was it really instrumental in, in leading up to the the Wall uh, sorry the the uh, the March on Washington mm-hmm. uh, for jobs and justice the the jobs part is often right. left out of right. there right yeah. it, was, it, was a, it was a union led uh, initiative in many ways but but what A Philip Randolph would have said and a hundred years ago we were a little bit more ahead of the times than we are now perhaps mm-hmm. what A Philip Randolph often said to his critics who said you know you're 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 a class reductionist. You're a class reductionist. You don't care enough about race. You don't care enough about your people, our communities. What A. Philip Randolph would have said is, well, what you're trying to do is you want to win before you win. Ah, yeah. Yep. You want to win the hearts and minds of the racists. You demand that they accede to your definition of, of, you know, racial inclusion and politics. Right. Before you develop the political capacities and the coalitions that can achieve the real movements on the ground that might produce those realities in the world. Right. And so that's really what I'm getting at in this rant is that, you know, I think we, we need to identify what Clinton was really talking about there when she said it won't end racism. Right. Because my concern is that this resolution, this, this DSA resolution, Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus, mm-hmm. risks – uh, undermining its noble and important aims mm-hmm. by demanding that we win before we have yeah. the capacity to win. So, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. I mostly sort of gleaned a lot of that from your work. So <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm ripping you off right now. Oh, uh, yeah. No, what, no. What, what, are, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of line of thought? Well, I think that's a really good way to put it, right? I mean, the win before you win thing, right? I mean, I, uh, and I mean, it makes me, uh, um, it brings to mind too the really nice, uh, strong, critical piece that R.L. Stevens did a, a couple months ago on Ta-Nehisi Coates in, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in a viewpoint, because he makes the point that uh, because Coates operates on the level of ideas and moral ab- ab- abstractions and is ahistorical and, and ontologizes uh, on racism as being always the same or always there ever and and that ultimately can't can't be un, undone. His uh, contribution is basically to deny the existence of politics, or to de- or or to deny the significance of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, uh, it's it's conservative in the same way that his insistence that r- racism is is ontological, that is uh, is its own being, and does. And is capable of doing things in the world is is uh, no different from from the Victorian uh, style uh, uh, white supremacist. I mean, racism that we associate with people like Charles Murray and others. Mm-hmm. But I'd say too that uh, I mean the, the uh, and this is something I don't like about uh, you know the racism idea is that it's it's an idea in the first place. Um, so it can never be defeated because it's not a set of institutions. Like it's not an organization. It's it's a it, it's a, not a concrete force in the world. 
And in that sense, racism and thus anti-racism are like terrorism and anti-terrorism, right? Hmm. Uh, I mean, you can never win because you don't ever define uh, because, uh, because the the enemy is not a real thing. But the other point I was going to make, though, about the uh, um, about the not being able to get rid of racism stuff. Uh, I mean, I remember when when the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act was being debated in. Congress. At one point, uh, Everett Dirksen, the Republican from uh, uh, from Illinois, complained that you can't legislate what's what's in people's hearts. To which Lyndon Johnson uh, responded, "Well, I'm not trying to legislate what's in their hearts. I'm trying to legislate their public behavior." And right, right. and that's right both for the immediate moment, but it's also the case that when you alter patterns of public behavior as as uh, mediated through political institutions, then you do change behavior, right? I mean, exactly. And that's the, you know, we've talked at length uh, in past episodes on, on this, this show about the uh, uh, ontology, ontologization, mm-hmm. <laughs> the racial ontology right. that underlies black essentialism and race essentialism. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, well, good. Um, of, of all sorts. Yeah, I mean, we're in the midst of the Summer Anti-Essentialism Series 2017. <laughs> well, great. <laughs> uh, I, I need a jingle for that, I think. <laughs> So, so this is this is definitely old hat on this show, and and you're really kind of like uh, the keynote address. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, cool. The, well, the exclamation point on, on on a lot of this stuff. Well, well, actually, uh, good. Then, uh, I mean, so let me make another little. I mean, uh, put put another little punctuation mark. Uh, I mean, you know, in the middle years of the last decade, right? We we worked for close to two years, like in an organizing campaign in South Carolina. Um, to win a ballot line for a labor party there, which we succeeded in doing. But but uh, the reason I mention that is that we spent a lot of time at uh, flea markets, uh, festivals, u- union halls, and some neighborhood work, right? And getting signatures. Mm-hmm. And and we worked like all over the state. And uh, nobody in our teams uh, reported ever having been asked what our position was on the Confederate flag. And there had just been a big fight over the Confederate flag flying over the, the uh, state house in Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, nobody asked what our, uh, our stance was on, on same sex marriage. I mean, even though the Republicans, uh, you know, that year in 06, were trying to um, put a ballot or put, put an initiative on the ballot that would read the, or write the, um, statutory prohibition on on same-sex marriage into the state constitution which was totally un, uh, unnecessary but was only an attempt to try to create uh, a red meat issue to mobilize around uh and i mean nobody asked us anything about evolution or prayer in school or anything like that and we think the reason that that was the case because a lot of people did say to us that they uh were excited and pleased uh, at least to see that there was some political entity in the state of South Carolina that was committed to talking about the things that um, you know, working people are actually concerned about in their daily lives, like jobs, housing, uh, um, health care, and uh, education, right? And what we realized, too, was that, that, that it's not only the you know, Republicans who want to reduce politics in South Carolina to being all about race. Uh, it's also the Democrats, except in a slightly different way, right? I mean, because uh, for because for the Democrats, it's like all about 
uh, you know, being, uh, be, being able to mobilize blacks and and to get the handful of white voters that they would need to win, like in some districts that they could hold hold on to. But both parties are committed to a reducing politics to issues that have nothing at all to do with, with the quotidian concerns that working people, black, black and white, spend most of their time fretting about. So I was just mentioning to a buddy a couple of days ago that, that it occurred to me that the Democratic Party now has an approach to the to black voters like uh, the planter class in black belt counties did in the 1870s and 1880s uh, that you can just kind of give them nothing and, I mean, depend, well, at this point, I mean, like depend on uh, the black political class um, to to undermine any possible uh, appeals to the left of the neoliberal wing, wing of the Democratic Party. And just vote them, I mean, to your interest and to go on about your business. I mean, and you know, I don't think this is off off the point, but 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 it's a pet peeve. Like during the Sanders campaign, I mean, I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I like everybody else, was confronted with these, uh, you know, with questions about why Bernie Sanders you know, isn't trying to appeal to black people. And my response was always the same. I would just go down the platform item by item and ask the interlocutor. <laughs> So how is this not an issue that would disproportionately benefit blacks and Latinos? Right. And again, um, I don't think that I'm overdrawing this, but I can't recall a single black working person. Now, I admit that most of those people that I talked or that I had this discussion with were in unions, but I don't recall a single black black working person whose response to my query wasn't, well, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's right. Now, in in the PMC, where race operates in a different way, I mean, politically, you know, I did encounter people who were not satisfied with with that response. But it makes sense. I didn't expect them to be, I mean, necessarily, uh, because the bottom line is, is that they don't really care about the working class of whatever color. But I just thought I'd get that out there because I want to say as firmly as possible that this line that the Sanders campaign didn't do enough uh, to appeal to black voters is bullshit. Right. And I really think, I mean, this resolution, even though it doesn't come out and say it, it sort of rehearses the same oh, yeah. uh, kind of logic about the nature of the socialist movement right, right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, the, you know, I want to get to the, ten, I want, we've, we've really laid out the background folk uh, information here and, you know, I want to lay things out piece by piece, mm-hmm. um, but this has been valuable. People can read the resolution for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so the background is probably more important here. But I mean, they even say there is a tendency in this organization to steer clear of quote identity politics in favor of a class reductionist analysis that confuses a quote multicultural coalition for a, homo- a homogeneous one. I'm not. I'm not really sure what that last bit means. Well- yeah, I'm not sure either, but I will say this though that you know, I don't know anybody, right? Uh and and especially not anybody who within the last 20 years has had a functioning prostate who embraced anything that looked like uh what's implied by class reductionism. I right, uh, right? Uh, yeah. right cuz at this point you know, everybody comes at least out of the new left. Sure. Right. Sure. I mean, I'm 70, which means I was 18 in 1965. Right. So I kind of uh, part of my 
uh, you know, the moment of my political activation was around black power or the birth of black power. Right. So just to be uh, clear, the new left started as this response uh, to, to integrate, uh, you know, more diverse sort of like right. political movements into the traditional, you know, uh, maybe you might call uh, laborist uh, kind of uh, tradition of the post-war yeah, era, and which which was always a caricature. Uh, I want right, to be thank clear. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was always that that laborism. Right. That didn't somehow didn't care about these uh, issues of, of 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 race and gender and sexuality and all the rest of it. I mean that that's a caricature. Right. It's it's it's, it's assuming that you know it's it's overlooking a, a wide array. I mean you can even go to like say. Hammer and Ho, uh, Robin right. D.G. Yeah. Kelly is, is, yeah. is one of the more popular right. uh, conceptions, you know, of, of how communists have. I think there are better ones, to be honest. Right. Yeah, I'm no, not, I do too. I'm not a big. I think you and I have our criticisms of Robin Kelly uh, is as brilliant and prolific as he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 that's one look at historical view of how, you know, communists and socialists have always been on the cutting edge right. of fighting for the most oppressed and exploited people uh, in, the, in the country. And yeah. frankly, I think that's one of the reasons that so many of of us on the left are um, inclined to assume uh, I mean, automatically that what sounds like um, a black or Latino or other non, non-white in, insurgency uh, is uh, you know, necessarily um, rooted in or compatible with the left politics uh, because the people, uh, because leftists have, have historically been much more likely to to identify with and to take up actively those those causes than than non leftists, but it ain't necessarily so, right? I mean, you are right. Uh, and Preston Smith's work on this is really great because he uh, makes a big point of distinguishing two relatively distinct nodes in in black politics from the 1930s through the 1960s. One of which he describes as committed to uh, a principle of racial democracy and the other committed to a principle of social democracy. And, and part of the confusion or one source of the contemporary confusion is that, you know, from the mid thirties to the mid sixties, probably uh, more often than, than not people committed to one or the other of, of those social visions or the visions of a just society came together around a common civil rights agenda. But the fact is that the ideal of of a new racial democracy is not only totally compatible with neoliberalism. If you read get Gary Becker's book on the economics of discrimination, I mean, you'll see that that's his vision, right? It, right, it, right. It, it's like strict equality of opportunity that treats bigotry or discrimination as, um, as irrational fetters on uh, market forces. And, you know, I mean, that's the vision, and, and it makes sense after you know, forty years plus of bipartisan neoliberalism. Um, the racial, I mean, democratic vision is the one that's won. Um, right, right. But it's not the same as the social democratic vision. So I want to spell that out. So mm-hmm. Preston Smith, we talked about this last week as well. I love this because we're remarkably coherent uh, throughout these past several uh, episodes that I've done. We talked about Preston Smith's uh, book. Uh, I had some listeners ask me about that one. Okay. It's called Racial Democracy in the Black Metropolis, Housing Policy in Post-War Chicago. Right. Uh, that's one of his, you know, central works. He has other articles and such. 
uh, hopefully much more on the way. Yeah. Uh, that was released yep. in 2012. The argument is essentially that, um, uh, you know, uh, he talks about how black civic leaders were fighting against racial discrimination and, and, but they were doing so in ways that promoted their own internal class right. interests. Right. And that was sort of the basis of, of what you've just described there right. as this, uh, this politics of racial democracy, which is, which is what we talked about with Cedric Johnson, uh, some weeks ago where he talks about this, this idea that race itself is a political constituency mm-hmm. um, right. devoid of, of right. you know, and he, his argument is, of course, race is, is, is never enough and it never has been enough to, to uh, you know, there are all, there's always stratification and internal uh, exploitation and oppression that goes on in, 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 in those, in those sort of ranks. And so what Preston Smith is arguing for is um, um, it's, it, it, you said it was social, social democracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Social democracy in turn. And, and so let's turn to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Let's let's contrast the the racial democracy with the social democracy view, and let's get to the nitty gritty of what the proposal is. So, folks can look at the proposal if they'd like to. It's in the show notes. It's a Google Drive document. Um, you know, there's a bunch of whereas's as you see in all these proposals, and be it resolves. Right. Um, so, the first one I want to draw f- folks' attention to is. Um, Whereas the right to self-determination and democratic control of our communities is necessary for our liberation. And there's two points there. The first one is one that will be familiar for folks who listened in uh, last week with Pascal Robert, where we talked about anytime you got to be keep your ears and eyes open. Anytime people start talking about our communities, our people, our liberation, they are necessarily bringing along with them the legacy and ideology of, uh, of black nationalism. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, and that's okay. If, you know, there are a lot of people who, who, who openly argue for forms of black nationalism, right. the revolutionary black nationalism. I'm thinking of, say, Glenn Ford with right. the Black Agenda Report, right. right, for example. But but I think we need to be conscientious that that is what this line is sort of smuggling in. Now, you know, then we, that opens up the question. Is DSA an organization uh, that, that is best served by the kind of national uh, – sorry, uh, black nationalist uh, legacy – and agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and by extension, of course, that black nationalism, it, it has a lot of overlap with what you've, you've described here eloquently as, as the, uh, the racial, demo- uh, racial democracy mm-hmm. uh, model. Right. So well, what's your take on that, that particular, whereas? Well, I tell you, uh, I mean, like it feels a little bit to me, like, like being in a time capsule, right? Cause this is like, uh, <laughs> what, I'm, what I mean, like straight out of late 1960s, black, black power rhetoric. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, it it made sense at the time, right? It made sense at the time because we hadn't had more than a half century after the after the Voting Rights Act. Like we hadn't had had the full emergence and consolidation of a of of a political class in actual cities and black communities around the country. Uh, so, uh, but at this point, uh, uh, I mean, you can't even say what the object is, right? I mean. What does self-determination mean, first of all, in in the United States? I mean, you can't, as Kamala Harris's father, who was at some point kind of a Marxist economist, pointed out, like in a critique of the black colony thesis or the domestic colony thesis, mm-hmm. um, there can't be self-determination if you don't have, at a minimum, a border that would enable you, like, to regulate, you know, the flow of of uh, goods and money and people and stuff. So what can self-determination mean concretely? And I'm a democratic control. I mean, I assume that that's supposed to mean something 
other than uh, you know, being ele- uh, on being able to to elect people to existing uh, I mean, levels of government. I don't know. And then there's the our own communities. Well, uh, but I mean that's you know that construct is is a problematic one now because uh, we we who and and what, what are the boundaries of the communities? And we know there's class I mean, differentiation and other kinds of differentiation in those areas. So, um, and what makes a community a community? And then finally, uh, you, know, you know, what the hell does one mean by, uh, you know, liberation? Right, right, right. So we're smuggling in a lot of unexamined uh, uh, concepts and frameworks that, that – uh, that, you know, I think we, re- at the least, even if we were going to try to argue for these, we need to we need to sort of know the history and understand what that's all about. I talked at length with Cedric uh, Johnson here on the show some weeks ago about his uh, sort of uh, black power aesthetic, uh-huh, right? That's kind of uh, been uh, you know appropriated by by uh, the left, and 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 and, uh, and it's really anachronistic. And uh, it, it doesn't take up a lot of the failures and contradictions that were baked in to the black power struggle. Apologies, everyone. At this point, the audio recording was a little bit corrupted. I'm not sure why that happened, but hey, it's broadcasting and uh, we got to roll with the punches on these things. So quick summary. I was sort of rambling on about the aestheticization of black politics and then Adolf launches into a really great story about Peniel Joseph's book on black power. Here we go. His his book on black power um, goes from um, some comments about the Black Panthers in Oakland around 1970 to hip-hop in the 80s. <laughs> and... And you read the book, and and you'd never know the Voting Rights Act was passed, and you certainly would have no sense whatsoever of the emergence of this political class, which has been that's totally integrated, you know, into neoliberalism, and has been as partly constitutive of it, in fact, uh, and 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 is the real story of Black Power, and as I've been saying, uh, you know, with a bit of a mea culpa, um, that while the received narrative is that black power was this militant and more authentic in insurgent um, e- expression from the black masses that uh, that uh, overcame um, a conservative racial uh, integrationism that was uh, at at least implicitly uh, you know inauthentic. Uh, uh, the truth is much closer to the opposite, right? That that mm-hmm. that. That if you look at the arguments that people like Rustin, uh, like Butt Byard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph was was were uh, making in the mid '60s uh, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, it, if you look at at the freedom budget for you know, all Americans that I mean they produced, uh, you know, I don't really like um, you know road not not taken uh, you know approaches to history because I think those are 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 kind of aestheticized too. But, but that was the tendency that was defeated, right? The social democratic tendency was in black politics was defeated in the late 1960s, right? right. And it's and I think to the extent that people have focused in a kind of happy days kind of way on the symbology and the couture of black power e- expressiveness, they've 
miss the political re- realities underneath them, which means that, that, that they're incapable of providing accounts that connect then and now or to help us understand how we've gotten the way we got to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just leaves you with, uh, you know, but it's always racism, uh, always everywhere, all the time. So it's an anti-politics. Fundamentally, it's an anti-politics. We've covered a lot of this stuff. Um, we've talked about the internal, col- uh, the ghetto as internal uh, colony thesis, uh, the the refutation of that, or at least what mm-hmm. I consider a refutation, yep. <laughs> uh, that was written by Donald J. Harris, that is K- Kamala Harris's father, who, who in 1972, I believe, published uh, the article, The Black Ghetto as Colony, uh-huh. a theoretical critique and alternative formulation. Yep. And so the, the argument there, which is still very live, and it's actually live in a sense in some of the platforms that I've seen coming out uh, in the DSA uh, convention uh, lead up here. Mm. So we need to talk about like what does it mean to uh, appropriate this black power nationalism that uh, was used in the 60s and 70s uh, for our struggle today when it wasn't even applicable there. Right. No, no, that's right. <laughs> as we said with right. Cedric, you know, right. you know yep. it, it wasn't even actually, as Donald Harris uh, argued persuasively and others, yep. it wasn't even applicable at that time in the midst of uh, segregation and Jim Crow. Yep. Uh, and it, so it certainly is, is, and in my estimation, uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm trying to be diplomatic about this as, as I can, but I just can't express how extremely uh, anachronistic and ahistorical it is to appropriate a framework that that never really was accurate in the '60s. Uh, 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 no, today. oh man, uh, no, man, absolutely. Okay, so we've outlined, uh, you've, you've really uh, brilliantly outlined the the defeat of the social democratic current in black politics coming out of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, so this is really the kind of terrain that we're, we're, we're the legacy that we're working with here. Uh, if, 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 you know, this caucus, this proposal is aimed at capturing uh, the radicalizing uh, black youth of today, uh, we have to understand kind of what that terrain is all about. So what do you make of that legacy of that defeat of the social democratic current? What does that tell us about today? Well, uh, one entailment of it, frankly, uh, is is that uh, you know, we've seen like really over 40 years or, or more um, a, a radical disconnection or disjunction of what purports to be a kind of social movement in insurgent, radical, militant politics from the really existing forms of uh, or um, expressions of you know, in the black political mainstream, right? So, like, you wouldn't. So, I mean, for instance, I mean, Peniel Joseph's book on uh, on a black power, I think, uh, um, you know, does this in in a very instructive way. Like, he's, yeah, t- t- tell uh, tell folks who uh, might not be familiar who was Peniel Joseph. What role did he play there? Uh, Peniel Joseph um, is an historian who devoted a career or tried to build a career around uh, founding something that he calls black power studies. Uh, and, and, but for him, black power is all the symbolic stuff. It's all, uh, you know, the music, the culture, the, um, uh, the dramaturgy, right? What, uh, you know, what, what my comrade Mark, Mark Dudzik calls a pageantry of protest. Right. A lot of aesthetics, a lot of, uh, a lot of black fists in the air. Right. 
Right, that's uh, right. Afros, you know, all that kind of cool looking stuff that we like. Yeah, Beyonce at the halftime show. You know? Oh yeah, that. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, yes. that, that that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The performative uh, black power. Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, like even before, uh, I mean, the complete commercialization. When my son was working on his dissertation, like he had to um, you know, do archival work in Chicago, and he came out and stayed with me for a few weeks and rode the bus bus from where I lived in uh, you know, South Shore down. Uh, you know, down to Newberry and Chicago Historical Society. And he came in uh, you know, one day and he asked me, Dad, so uh, you know, why do so many of the brothers think that politics is like a costume party, right? Because there's this, because <laughs> a lot of the black uh, black nationalism stuff, and it's not just the Hebrew Israelites, but but comes with gear, right? So the gear is like, uh, you know, part of the politics. But um, yeah, so so in Joseph's book on black power, uh, you first of all would 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 never know that the Voting Rights Act was passed. Like he doesn't discuss the em, the emergence of 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 the black political class. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that is like the big story in black politics since 1965. In fact, my good friend Willie Leggett, I'm going to uh, see in South Carolina in a couple of days, uh, put it wonderfully with the pithy uh, observation that the only thing that hasn't changed about black politics since 1965 is how we think about it. And I mean, so, so the Joseph book jumps from, from some thin discussion of the black Panthers in, in Oakland in 1970 or 71, uh, by which point, I mean, most of the Panthers were, were either cops or thugs or cops and thugs. Uh, but, but he jumps from that, like the hip hop, like there's, uh, and when when the real story of actual Black American politics is the consolidation of this class, right? Uh, and I mean the consolidation of the class that comes along with um, uh, both a shriveling uh, and um, and uh, and um, um, a careful policing of the boundaries of what counts as appropriate black political activity or black political aspiration and what doesn't. Uh, and I, uh, and I'll point again to, uh, you know, when John Lewis and, uh, Jim Clyburn and, and, and others in the, in, uh, the primary campaigns, uh, um, attacked, uh, you know, the Sanders campaign mm-hmm. for, uh, pushing for a um, you know, decommodified healthcare and, higher education. And their argument was that it's, it was irresponsible to tell people in America that you can get stuff for free. And, and that's, you know, kind of, that's, that's part of uh, defining and imposing, uh, you know, understanding of what the limits of black politics and black Americans political aspirations ought to be. Right. Isn't it, isn't it telling that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that black, the black elites sort of, uh, in that discourse, black elites are an empty vessel that just need to be catered to in the in the appropriate way, and they'll come around. Because when the John Lewis's of the world didn't back Sanders, the argument went, "Well, he just didn't reach out to to oh, them right. in the right no, way." No, no. Right, that's right. right. That's or, right. Or could could it be perhaps that they're actually ideologically inclined <laughs> and politically and material and materially aligned uh, against the social democratic current that Bernie Sanders sort of represents? Well, that's it. Right. I mean, that's uh, yeah, I mean, that's the point. And, and, but but the fact is that that in the 
context of the turn that what, you know, uh, I mean, I don't think it makes sense to call this stuff radicalism, but whatever, you know, black expressive politics has, has taken, that doesn't even come up because, I mean, it's hard for me to understand the plane on which people doing this um, imagine that they're engaging, right? I mean, uh, I mean, this is the politics that, that doesn't really hinge on or even try to develop a systemic critique of the structures of exploitation and oppression or, or the structures of inequality, of you know, durable inequality now. And it's not interested in um, um, propounding you know, any particular transformative political vision you know, with any concrete substance to it, and especially not any concrete substance that affects people's lives uh, on a daily basis. And it's a politics that doesn't seem at all I mean, interested in in uh, identifying, much less sharpening the contradictions among uh, in uh, you know, Black American civic life. So, so it's hard for me to figure out what what this politics is is supposed to be and what its objectives are. Uh, you know, apart from from careerism, frankly, and you know, you don't have to be cognizant of being a careerist to be a careerist, right? Uh, and but I do understand that one of the problems that, that we have is that for young people who want to be radicals or socialists or, or uh, new revolutionaries or whatever, um, you know, there's no experience of having won anything. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like my cohort won a lot either. I mean, uh, I mean, I used to joke that by the time I got used to the 70s, they were gone. And, mm-hmm. and what was true for a lot of us was that you know, we spent a lot of time in the '70s and the early '80s sharpening the critique of the of the capitalist welfare state from the left, and then comes Reagan, and you find yourself in a position in in which, unless you're a, a tone deaf sectarian, you can't attack the welfare state anymore. At least not on those terms, right? You got to. Um, so, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all. This is all useful. So let's let's talk. So we're talking about uh, the terrain that exists right now uh, in in these in these fields uh, where, say, uh, you know, uh, racialized uh, black uh, in in this particular Afro uh, emerging socialists would uh-huh. sort of arise. And we're talking about the foundation world. So I want to get right. into the nitty gritty of this proposal. Well, okay. One of the more problematic aspects of, of this proposal, I think, as a, as a strategic orientation for DSA as an organization, or even the broad socialist left for that mm-hmm. matter, is that they endorse the uh, Bra- uh, Black Youth Project 100, mm-hmm. um, and their, their sort of platform and their strategy, the BYP's agenda to build black futures. Right. Right. Um, and so essentially, uh, DSA is signing on, uh, farming out rather DSA is farming out their, uh, black p- political, uh, you know, platform or whatever, whatever that means. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. to, to BYP 100. So right. d- take us through some of the more problematic aspects of that. Well, I mean, the first thing is, uh, that it's ridiculous that, uh, you know, one organization would consent to sublet pardon me, a section of its platform to some other organization, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. and I mean, that's what this is, right? Uh, and I would say, like, if you don't think that that, that DSA uh, is, is capable of crafting with your own participation a platform about race or justice for uh, black people, and if that's important to you, then you shouldn't be in DSA, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. 
uh, so I mean that's just uh, what I mean that's just on the simple. But the thing about you know Black Youth Project One Hundred uh, and like I mean BLM, I mean these aren't membership organizations; these aren't mass organizations, right? These mm-hmm. are self-selected uh, groups of activists who don't necessarily have organic roots in in any black communities anywhere uh i mean byp in particular was born out of out of the university of chicago race center for instance so but i mean when i saw that in the resolution i just it kind of stopped me in my tracks i mean a lot of the you know stuff in the resolution is is uh familiar oh i mean that one just Look, I mean, we had people like in a labor party trying, you know, to shoot their way into caucuses and so forth and so on and to take control of parts of our program. But nobody uh, ever suggested that we needed to subcontract a segment segment of the program to somebody else with no oversight. I mean, that's Mm – I mean, like I've said, if if you don't think that even with your own participation – DSA has the ability to formulate a reliable approach on these questions, and you don't belong in DSA if these questions are of paramount importance to you. Right, so, right. Uh, and I mean, that's not, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying get out, right? But, <laughs> but I'm just, but it just doesn't seem to me why it is you'd want to be here. I think that's a provocative question. It's an important one to ask in order to reframe the logic of the debate because it sounds to me like, so being more charitable about why this sort of seems like a good approach is uh-huh. the way that the left has organized, uh, oriented around these politics of identity for so long yep. is that they sort of seem to think that the best way uh, to uh, diversify your organization, right, using these catchphrases, is yep. to, to, to gain legitimacy in these communities and across the country right. by, by plugging in to these already existing uh, legitimate right. formations. Right. Um, and so that we can right. glean legitimacy from BYP 100 right. um, and, and somehow build our organization on that basis. And people will then become flocking to us um, uh, because of that. Well, I guess I'll say it again. Like if you don't believe that DSA or the membership of DSA can be trusted to come correct on a set of issues that are really important to you, I'll say it again, then the real answer to the problem is that DSA is not the organization for you. Because because you're not a believer in the fundamental power of, of the, the style of intervention and organization that has brought them success thus far. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there's this, I want to get back to that, the, so, the solidaristic aspect and how to maybe intervene in a more uh, 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 successful way, mm-hmm. given, given the success that they've, they've had recently as a big tense, uh, you know, left-wing socialist organization. Right. But, but let's get to a, a more sort of nitty-gritty aspect here, uh, mm-hmm. specifics. One of the most problematic aspects of this proposal, and this is a procedural issue, mm-hmm. which is that, uh, be it resolved that the national will allow autonomous leadership of said caucus. Um, so that we're, we're tying up a couple different issues. The issue of having caucuses right. is, is something that I think deserves a, a very intense discussion in itself. Yep. I'm told that there is either going to be, or there's under proposal, uh, a Jewish caucus as well. Um, it's hard to say, 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be overly speculative here, but come on, the optics on this are, are crystal clear. It seems mm-hmm. to me, right? They're very infamously. There's a, a BDS proposal, boycott, divestment, sanctions right. uh, yeah. uh, against uh, the the you know the the state of Israel and its crimes mm-hmm. against the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's hard not to see the creation of the Jewish caucus as a way of saying, okay, yeah, sure, we we're doing BDS, but we're not we're not. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, you know, we're not anti-Semites right. because look here, we've got this Jewish caucus. Right. right. Um, now that's right. one strategy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course say groups like Jewish voice for peace have had a lot of success right. with claiming the mantle, like the legitimate mantle, uh, you know, that Zionism does not equal Judaism. Right. 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 The Zionism is, is this evil deformation Right uh, of 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 the Jewish faith and the Jewish identity, and and we want to create our our, our legitimate space. Mm-hmm. So th- there's that argument, but but it also seems like it's the the Jewish caucus is being offered up as a token gesture to try to combat and prefigure some of these um, some of these external assaults that we're going to face as an organization. Uh, okay, yeah. and so so what I'm what I'm curious then is if if the caucus, if this Afro socialist caucus, is meant to serve the same purpose, is meant to be a shortcut or a defensive mechanism against the kind of external attacks that DSA faces. And if that's the case, like, is this even something that we should really be worried about? Right? Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, I, well. Is uh, it going to work? Right? Yeah, is it going to work? Right. Are the Zionists going to stop attacking DSA oh, because no. they have a Jewish caucus? No, of course not. No. Are the racists and then the hoteps on the other side going to stop attacking DSA nope. for being allegedly too white just nope. because they have a black uh, Afro-socialist caucus? Nope. I mean, not at all. And yeah. yeah. And I mean, what and what caucuses are? I mean, I, but it feels to me like that you know, DSA is at a point now that's kind of like, uh, 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 you know, with the recent um, e- expansion, it's kind of on the verge of being a new um, a new organization. Yeah, yeah. And in that sense, it's kind of like where we were when we founded the Labor Party, and the caucus issue came up then. And and I mean, our take on it was that look, I mean, in the infancy of an organization, right, you really have to focus on broadening the solidarities. And cons- and tightening this or knitting and broadening the solidarities uh, more than anything else. Uh, and from that perspective, like a caucus uh, can be a really corrosive and a counterproductive thing to have. As though, hmm. and especially um, you know uh, you know an ethnically defined caucus. I mean, and re- realistically, uh, in you know pragmatic uh, in political terms. Caucuses are niches for cultivation of alternative power bases. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you want to do that, right? I mean, you want to have, uh, I mean, a polycentric organization. I mean, and if the caucus is autonomous, then anybody, basically, right? Uh, like, you don't even have to have have commitment to DSA principles, hmm. right? Uh, right, to maintain a caucus. But the first question is, well... What would the caucus do? I mean, what what would be the objective reasons to have a caucus? Uh, the substantive reason is like how um, a lot of elite colleges or one elite university after another started getting these race centers because uh, the race center becomes, and it's not just race centers, but, you know, Anna Julia Cooper Center or other centers become vehicles for showing respect for the group. 
right, or right, the, right. or field of study. And a caucus that's proposed apart from any specific ob- objectives, uh, I mean, seems to me to be that kind of uh, you know that kind of ultimately vanity project. We need to be careful about uh, the received wisdom of the caucus, right? Uh, the logic no. of of caucus, right? Absolutely. No, and, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, my argument, and this is not going to be popular, but I, I really hope that folks hear this out and take it seriously. My argument is that let's just say that the objectives here, because um, there are objectives in this proposal, to be fair. Right, yeah. Uh, the objectives yep. is the reparations, the colonial reparations, yep. and uh, you know, the, the reparations from uh, descendants of slavery. Mm-hmm. And of course, the BYP agenda, which is sort of very expansive and full of slogans. Right. right. Um, let's just say that we really want to win the organization over to these objectives. Mm-hmm. Is sliding this in through the back door, so to speak, via a, uh, a, a sort of a minoritarian caucus? Is that really the best way to get a broad buy-in from the from the mass organization? That's, in terms of that's a very important question. Yeah, in terms of selling this in, you know, because there's are you know there's a way in which when you're an organization, even if you pass something, well, that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning, right? And to what extent uh, can you can you uh, uh, sell and win the majority of the organization uh, over to the necessity of this project if? The folks who are are behind it are sort of in their little uh, minoritarian enclave in the Black Caucus. And so wouldn't it make more sense to disperse those folks, those emerging cadres, you know, who are embedded in these places and in these politics? Wouldn't it make it more sense to disperse these folks into uh, the mass activities of the organization? Well, you know, that's a very important observation and, and, and a very important position. I mean, because the caucus, yeah, I mean, the caucus approach is a centripetal one. And that's the opposite of what you need, you know, that's opposite of the mindset and the strategic approach that you need to take to try to build the organization. Uh, right, the caucus becomes a beachhead that doesn't so much you know, facilitate organizing as as it facilitates like defensive work to uh, protect um, you know, the position of the caucus. Right, exactly. And so, I mean, that's the, the fundamental question is is the similar one that we raised about the foundations. Mm-hmm. No matter how good the intentions, no matter how noble the efforts, right. can the structure deliver? Uh, what it uh, promises or what it aims to deliver. And I think there's a really legitimate argument here when it comes to the the art of politics that this caucus, that you can't sort of slip in through the back door via caucuses, uh, policies that really need a broad uh, uh, selling. Uh, to, to I mean, there's 23,000 people in the organization right now. I know not all of them are active, but... Uh, right. You're not going to get that, you know, with a hell, even even a hundred person caucus, uh, you're not going to get the kind of um, you're not going to have the, the institutional organizational leverage to sell this across the board. So so let's let's move to more sort of positive programmatic alternatives to this. Okay. I want to sort of throw out one. I had a good conversation uh, with a fellow DSA member the other day, and he suggested to me. Uh, rather than the reparations bit, rather than uh, these uh, hand-waving gestures to caucuses to try mm-hmm. to show everyone else that we really do care about this stuff. If you mm-hmm. want to reach 
racialized people across this country who are who disproportionately uh, are packed into trade unions. Right. Yep. Uh, women of color in yep. particular are yep. disproportionately over are overrepresented in unions. Yep. Um, you know what about this as a formal aspiration? What if we for example, proposed affiliating formally with, say, National Nurses United. Mm-hmm. And we gave them 40 delegates to our convention mm-hmm. every other year. Okay, yeah. And and they, they sent their 40 delegates, which, like I said, nurses, uh, a, a, a trade union, o- overrepresented by particularly women of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be a diverse, working class embedded. Yep. yep collectivity that can really that has structural power right at the at the bargaining table and, and right. within communities in yep. that way uh, that that's a that's a way that we can frame this question of like how do we become more working class right how do we diversify but how do we maintain the type of uh political and strategic orientation that has brought us so much success thus far in the past year mm-hmm. now i think that's a really interesting idea I mean, you think about doing it with other union bodies as well, both uh, your national organizations and uh, and uh, you know locals in in the area where in areas where there are DSA locals. Uh, uh, I mean, the one thing is this might not be necessary with the nurses, but like DSA will have to offer them a reason that it makes sense to affiliate. Sure, sure, right, right. I mean, that, that that's that's the risk of just throwing that out there. The only reason we use uh, National Nurses United no, but I think it's a great it's, idea, though. Yeah, it's such a well known, it's such a well known right. uh, organization. You're right; it could be any other, or just community organizations, labor organizations yeah. uh, locally. But you're right. I mean, and that's the thing, right? I mean, it's aspirational. The details will have to be worked out over time, right? But, but in my mind, if you want a, a, an embedded, organic, overrepresentedly diverse and, and, and racialized, uh, you know. Uh, contingent of folks mm-hmm. building those relationships. Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and is a far more robust and yep. in- interesting way to do it than, than sort of a cordoning off people into a caucus. Yep. I think. Uh, uh, and I completely agree, man. Yeah. No, that's a great idea. I think that that's something actually, uh, I mean, there's not time to get a resolution together for this convention, sure. but, but it's something uh, you know, definitely think about pursuing. Yeah, and at the national level, of course, that will have to come as a culmination of, of local and regional projects, I'm sure, because like you know, the details will have to be worked out. But I just wanted to put that in on. Uh, I wish you could give the comrade credit, but uh, I didn't ask for his permission, yeah. so I don't. I don't want to do that. Yeah, yep. uh, But but you know, uh, it's a really interesting and, and innovative idea, and it fits with the kind of picture. Right, this political economic vision that shows, if you look at the popularity of Bernie Sanders right now among mm-hmm. uh, what we call racialized people in the yep. silly way that we do, right? Yep. But that's what it is yep. among racialized people mm-hmm. and women. Right, uh, you see that that Bernie Sanders is immensely popular, yep. and so there's something about that 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 agenda that that you know, calling it class reductionism. <laughs> is just is is really denigrating the everyday needs of of these communities in, in a way that's i think unacceptable well yeah uh, uh yes it absolutely is and i think that it it uh, you know, moreover is it is at least uh you know substantively a dodge because because what they're proposing is like a race reductionist politics that's true. So we've laid out a possible alternatives. Yeah, that sounds um, like a really good one too, man, which I think would be a, a great thing to do. Mm-hmm. 
that's an alternate. It's a it's a concrete positive alternate to this kind of sectoral identitarian, uh, you know, segregated uh, way that I think has really failed in, in, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I think we've laid out the the, crit, the critique of the proposal. I think, you know, we've provided folks with a language and a conceptual framework to reject these kind of, you know, stale status mm-hmm. quo, uh, romanticized, um, regurgitated yep. Yep. <laughs> positions to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> I've been, I've been diplomatic up to now, Adolf. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Adolf, any 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 parting words before I finally let you let you get out of here and, and go about your business? I thank you so much for uh, giving you uh, giving us this time. Uh, no, thanks for having me. This has been really good, and and I hope it's been uh, useful. It's been a lot of fun for me, and I'll be happy to do it again whenever you want. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, you know, my audience loves your message, and uh, you've inspired a lot of us uh, to take these positions. And uh, you know, you're. You know, that experience and leadership's important. You know, some of us have been at this for six months and you've been at it for going on 50 years. So uh, thanks for coming by the Dead Planet Society. Yeah, uh, yeah, man, my pleasure. Take care. And that's our show, everybody. I hope you liked it a lot. And if you love it and you got to have more of it, head on over to my Patreon.com and subscribe. Once you're a member of the Dead Pundit Society, you'll have access to the full two hour and 20 minutes of that interview. In addition to another two hour interview I did with Adolf on different topics, you know, that was more of his uh, sort of broad scholarly work. We covered a lot of his critique of uh, black politics that he's laid out over the past three or four decades. You're not going to want to miss that. It's really hot stuff. So, I've got uh, a long interview with Katie Halper over there. I have some additional bonus footage that I did uh, months ago uh, with uh, my interview with Angela Nagel, the author of Kill All Normies. I have some other bonus footage and stuff there you're not going to want to miss. So, you know, check me out on Patreon. If you're not a subscriber already, you really should be. Uh, Thanks again to everybody for listening. Check me out at Twitter, at DeadPundits. Find me on Facebook. If you're a DSA comrade, if you're going to convention, by all means, please reach out to me. Uh, Let's network. Let's talk and strategize about how we can build DSA in a better direction for the future. All right. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...